Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Ontario's first case of South African COVID-19 variant has been reported. Where do these variants come from and what can we do about it? We'll talk about that. Yesterday saw Ontario Minister of Education Stephen Lecce make a non-announcement that has left a lot of parents wondering, when are the schools going to reopen? And these COVID-19 vaccines don't come from nowhere. We pay for the development and now that they're here, we're paying for them again. We'll give you all the details on that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going on with COVID-19, or is it a variation of COVID-19, I guess? Uh, We're told that uh, the vaccination program, of course, uh, well, globally, is having some problems because of supply situations with Pfizer and Moderna. But now we're told uh, yesterday by the Medical Officer of Health for the province here that uh, the, the new variations of the virus are starting to be a, a problem and they're very concerned about the impact that it might have. So uh, to try to get some clarity on that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Dr. Rodney Rohde. Uh, Dr. Rohde, of course, is a professor and chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program and College of Health Professionals at Texas State University. Uh, doctor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. It's always great to join you guys. Well, let's, let me ask you, you know, we've been talking about this, uh, you and I, for months now, about COVID-19 and, and coronaviruses, et cetera. Uh, and, and now we're dealing with, I guess it's a variation on this. Uh, you know, we've heard about what they call a UK version of this. Uh, that we have a, a recorded case now here in Ontario of a South African coronavirus variant. Uh, I don't know how many more there are, but uh, as I'm, I'm talking to some experts like yourself, I guess uh, this is not unusual for these sorts of things to, to morph into variations, is it? That's right, Bill. You know, it's interesting. I guess I was just thinking this morning when when I was calling or when you were calling me that I think we've been talking now for almost a year, which kind of yep. blows my mind that we've been yep. discussing this. But, but you know, in many ways, uh, this virus, like other RNA viruses, they do mutate consistently. So if I can just give you a little bit of context for that, I'll start with that. Uh, mm-hmm. Viruses basically, they do this. This is a normal thing. They make random copies of certain genes, and that leads to different Version. So you can think about variants almost like cousins. That's just one kind of analogy to think about this. And sometimes these variants are harmless. They actually will, will go through copies and it really won't do anything. But unfortunately, sometimes it can make the virus more effective. For example, sometimes variants might be able to create greater numbers. So it creates a better ability to reproduce or it might do something like change a gene that allows that virus to effectively bind to our cells more stronger, or they might even do something to change their outer surface so that our antibodies don't work as well. So that's what we're worried about is, are some of these variants going to do that? If you look right now uh, at the variations that are occurring, you mentioned the South African strain. Um, That also popped up in the U.S. this past week. It's popped up in South Carolina and in Maryland. Uh, the U.K. strain's been out there for a while. That's the B117. Mm-hmm. There's a couple out of Brazil, and there's actually one in California, too, in the U.S. that we're we're kind of looking at right now. There doesn't seem to be any major problems with it. But what we're focusing on, obviously, is how is it going to affect really a few things. One is vaccination, because if it changes too much, then you may have to do something with the vaccine content so that you add that uh, that different language in there for the mRNA vaccines, or you may have to change your components so that it, so that it will protect more people, just like the flu vaccine each year. You have to kind of change that. Yeah, I see. Right now, I think right now we just don't know because we haven't seen the vaccine laid out over you know six months, nine months, a year. So we're not real sure 
but we're planning, I guess, for that scenario in case we need to do so. And, and therein lies the problem. I, you know, the the I, I I can understand why we're all saying, you know, let's roll up our sleeves, let's get this thing going. But how much time do we need to wait before we have to act, understand just how effective this vaccine is going to be, even against these variants? Uh, you know, because uh, as you say, if it changes. Uh, at what point do we say, well, wait a second, now we have to do something about this? I mean, we've always talked about, and I know President Biden has talked about this, our prime minister has talked about, uh, you know, we want to have this done by late summer, early fall, try right. to get everybody who wants a vaccine vaccinated. Uh, is In a worst-case scenario, are we going to come back in September and say, ah, line up again, guys, we're going to have to redo this whole thing? Well, I think in a worst-case scenario, if, you, if we start there, we certainly could be looking at the potential of booster shots. But before we go there, I think well, the first thing I'd like to say kind of professionally about this and, and with all the expertise that I read and study is that right now, we still believe all the different uh, vaccines that we have, Moderna, uh, Pfizer, hopefully the new Johnson & Johnson and the others, the, the Zeneca Oxford one, are still going to be okay at this point. Remember, Bill, even if the vaccines, we're, we're kind of, I think we're almost um, looking at, you know, that great news about Moderna and Pfizer being at 95%. Generally, vaccines are not that awesome. Generally, they are in the 70 percentile, 80 percentile. That's what flu is each year. And we live with that and, and we save lives with that. So I've been telling people, you know, don't let the perfect, you know, be the, the enemy of the very good. So if these vaccines still cover most of the mortality issues and most of the severe illness issues where people are put in hospitals, let's say people still may get mildly ill or something like that, that's still a win, in, in my opinion. You'd still want to get vaccinated as soon as possible. That's what I'm telling my friends and colleagues. Take any vaccine you can get uh, that's been approved, and then let's wait and see because we just can't totally predict what's going to happen in six to nine months. So we're going to be looking at that. The other issue, Bill, that, that we have to think about, and this is more in my world uh, with respect to testing, is if, it, if these strains start becoming the dominant strains, which can happen, um, whether it's in Canada or in the U.S. or wherever, we also have to be careful with our testing because the tests are designed to pick up certain genetic sequences that we've been looking at you know, for the last year. Mm-hmm. And if those change, um, it could make some of our testing a little a little more variable, uh, and so we also have to be on top of diagnostics in case that happens. And, hey, I, and the way we – go ahead. No, I should go ahead. It's, it's an important point about the testing, uh, and I was concerned about that and, and about the vaccines itself, and I, I don't want to downplay this because, I mean, that's obviously we understand the severity of what we're dealing with here, but your, I think your analogy of, of the flu and influenza is, is actually quite apt here. Uh, I get a flu shot every year because we really don't know what variation of the flu is going right. to be uh, dominant in North America, and and we just live with that now. That's okay. I'll get my. I might still get the flu. I haven't so far this year. Knock on wood. But I mean, after I had my shot, uh, but uh, it, it you know it reduces and, and mitigates the impact that it can have on you. Is, is the potential that that's how this virus is going to be a part of our lives for some time to come, possibly? That is absolutely a potential um, you know scenario where. Again, coronavirus, it's not its not the same as influenza, but they are both RNA viruses, and, they, and RNA viruses love to change, so we're kind of stuck with that issue. But we very well could, you know, in the coming years, have some type of scenario where, and I, and I don't even know if, if this is out of, out of the, um, totally out of the question, is maybe in the future we have a combined flu and coronavirus vaccine mm. where we get multiple. I mean, with this new technology, 
we really haven't done a ton of information about the new mRNA vaccines, and they are they are phenomenally uh, advanced in how they can uh, utilize it. That's why they're even talking about we might be able to change this in three or four months to include new variations. That's unheard of. That typically takes a good year or more to kind of watch that. So that part of it is is um, you know exciting as a virologist and a, and someone who follows this. Certainly, we hope the virus doesn't keep changing all the time, but I think we are at a point technologically and in the scientific world where we might be able to at least keep up with it. We may not get ahead of it all the time, but we ought to be able to respond pretty quickly. I, I got about a minute left here, but I got to ask you about one other thing here, and that's about sure. vaccine production. Uh, you know, we all know about the problems we're having with Pfizer and Moderna now because of chain su- supply mm-hmm. chain problems, etc. Uh, I, I now I know that Pfizer's got an outfit in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where they're doing some production. Are we going to get smarter here in North America and understand that we shouldn't have to rely on Belgium or, or some other place for for this? If this is going to be part of our lives, uh, are we going to ramp this up with our technology here in North America? I hope so. You know, I mean, I think that's the I think that's the question that everybody's asking is, can we find a way, uh, at least in in geographical areas that make sense, you know, for a country, can we find the raw materials in house so that we can kind of you know protect our our citizens without relying on those supply chains? And I don't think that's really an isolationist attitude. I think that is a reality. You know, mm-hmm. let's find ways we can still rely on the global uh, world. But let's have let's have plans to not have to in case we have these supply chain issues. So I know one of the issues on these vaccines for the mRNA thing, uh, ones that I've read about is there's something called a liposome, which which encircles that mRNA. And there's something about that. It is super difficult to biologically engineer and, and put together. So I do talk to people about, you know, we do have to be patient. Uh, I want it as bad as anybody else, but we don't want to rush it so much that yeah. we end up having poor quality. So there's there's a there's a breaking line there where we have to make sure it's done right, or we will be in even worse shape because then no one will want to take you know a bad product. Exactly. Uh, more to come on this, as they say in the biz. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate your insight. Thanks so much, Bill. Be safe. You too. Dr. Rodney Rohde, of course, from Texas State University. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML in Hamilton. Uh, yesterday on the program, of course, we heard from Education Minister Stephen Lecce uh, what we thought was going to be an announcement about school reopenings. Uh, he kind of dodged the bullet on that one two or three times when the, the media started asking some questions. So, uh, and, and they announced some funding. A lot of it was kind of a re-announcement of an awful lot of stuff, but it's got to be awfully frustrating uh, when we understand exactly how boards have to work and, and plan for reopening. And, and how this is going to look. So I wanted to bring Don Danko into the conversation. Don, of course, is the chair of the Hamilton uh, Wentworth District School Board. Uh, Don, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Uh, first off, uh, what was your reaction to what the minister said yesterday? Well, good morning, Bill. Um, I think, as you mentioned, we were maybe hoping for some additional clarity on returning to in-person, certainly in Hamilton and some of those other areas that have been in extended remote um, learning. We, we didn't get that information. We heard that there's hope and we're potentially going to get an announcement tomorrow that, that we are not entirely sure what that's going to be about. But um, certainly it was a re-announcement of, uh, and, and some clarification on some of the previous information that they'd shared. We've been waiting for some of these details since the beginning of January. 
Yeah, but uh, it didn't really clarify uh, the uh, ultimate question here. Is, uh, and I know our London listeners are saying, okay, we're back to school in, in that district, and that's wonderful news. Uh, but there's an awful lot of this province right now uh, that are uh, basically on the edge of their seats saying, are we going to go back? And if we are, uh, is it for good? Uh, and in what form? Uh, and the fact is you might get an announcement tomorrow. The minister kind of hinted at that. Uh, but that being the case, uh, you know, you might have two or three days to try to get this thing in motion. That's, that's putting an awful lot of pressure on the board. It is. At the same time, we are prepared. Um, we, we needed to be prepared for a return to in-person. Um, I think we have the pieces in place to do that. I believe families and our staff, more than anything, just want some certainty of what's going to happen next week. Um, and, and I think it's important that we have some clarity on that. So I really do hope that tomorrow we, we do hear um, what is happening for return to school that would be earlier than we've heard in the past so uh, again I, i'm hopeful but we'll we'll see what the the ministry has to say uh, but i i think it's so important to recognize that that families everywhere are are struggling with this and um we, we do want to see our students back in school as soon as we can safely well i'm certainly hearing from a lot of those families i'm sure you are as well uh and I, I know that I don't want to leave people with the impression that you're just sitting here waiting for the minister to, to make an announcement on this. Uh, we need to reassure them that uh, that you, as, as chair of the board, and, and I know Manny Figueroa uh, from the board, are well. you're in constant contact with the, with the Hamilton agencies here, with Dr. Elizabeth Richardson and others, uh, about what's happening in the local situation. So you get a pretty good idea as to what's going to happen and what the, what the, the lay of the land is here, don't you? Absolutely. Like Public health has been an amazing partner. Uh, we've been working collaboratively collaboratively with them all through the pandemic. And uh, a lot of the direction we're hearing from the ministry, you might have noticed that they mentioned that a lot of this is contingent on public health supporting specific actions. Um, so we have, you know, the opportunity for asymptomatic testing. We've been asking for that for months now and would be pleased to have that, that capability. But ultimately, our local public health will decide when and where that would be appropriate. And, and with that in mind, I know the discussion you and I have had in the past uh, about this uh, is the concern that you and and the rest of the board members have uh, about, you know, what is the future? I mean, you know, is this on again, off again? Are you going to go back next Monday and then have they pull the plug again in two or three weeks? That that indecision, and I understand it's based on, on data and information they're getting from medical officers of health. We get that. But, uh, I, you know, for a board such as yourself and you've always told us that you know job one for you guys is is quality of education and making sure that the students are looked after uh to be in 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 a mode like this where you don't know what's going to happen from week to week sometimes it's got to be awfully frustrating and, and not the best environment for students for learning Certainly, we've seen that some students have actually thrived in this environment, but we know for a lot of students, it has been a struggle. Um, I know that students are missing their their social interactions with their friends. And, you know, we do hear some positive stories where at their lunch break, they'll actually online connect with one another and play a game um, so that they have something that's more like that social experience that they would have at school. Uh, but ultimately, we, we do know that children are not getting the same level of exercise. They're not getting to and from school. They're not outside at recess necessarily. And a lot of families don't necessarily have the capability to supervise their kids, um, especially younger kids, to help them spend time outside. Depending on where you are, you, you would need supervision for that. So we know that there are some impacts and their medical experts are calling for schools to be a priority. So as we are looking at what happens with this stay-at-home order, um, do we continue it or not? There, there, there's a number of medical experts, and I'm sure you've seen this, where they're saying 
schools opening needs to come first before we reopen anything else. And I believe our families and our staff would agree with that. Yeah, and that's a debate that's ongoing in the province and I guess right across the country as well. Well, Don, we'll see what the uh, the minister has to say tomorrow. That's uh, when they hinted that they may make some sort of an announcement. So uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about vaccines. That's in the news today. Obviously, we're talking about the, the announcement the Prime Minister is about to make here uh, that uh, that we may start uh, actually producing uh, some of the vaccine stuff for COVID-19 uh, in the Montreal area. That's good news. But there's so much discussion going on here right now, and I, I think a lot of misinformation or mis perceptions about uh, what's happening with the people that are producing the vaccines right now, the Modernas and, and of course, the Pfizers and things of this nature. Uh, we're paying for these. I, I mean, this, there's not a whole lot of philanthropy going on here. This is a, a business exchange that's happening. Try to shed some light on this. We're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Joel Lechgen, a Professor Emeritus with School of Health Policy and Management, Faculty of Health at York University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. It's my pleasure, Bill. Thanks for uh, having me. Well, there's a fascinating piece about this, and, and like I say, uh, you know, we're, I think we're all gratified uh, to see you know, healthcare workers, frontline workers, uh, you know, rolling up their sleeves and, and getting their shot, uh, because you know that kind of tells us that yeah, we're getting under control here. Uh, and, and the Pfizer's and the Modernas have been elevated, I guess, to almost superstar status right now. But there's a process that goes into all of these things, I guess, as we're discovering, doctor, and we pay for it as taxpayers, don't we? We certainly do. Um... One of the things is that we don't really know how much we're paying. So we've got contracts with, I think, six or seven different um, companies that either have vaccines or have potential vaccines. Uh, But the terms of those contracts are all secret. Um, So we don't know how much per dose we're paying. We don't know um, what the requirements for shipments are to Canada. We don't know whether or not there are any penalties if companies fall behind on their um, on their shipments. Um, All that is um, commercially confidential information. Um, So it's our money, but we really um, don't know how much or have any of the details about how that money is being spent. Why the secrecy? Well, if you look at it from the um, point of view of both the government and the company, um, part of it goes to, goes back to the fact that these vaccines are being treated um, as normal commercial products, um, the same way as you might treat um, computers, um, but they're not. They, obviously, you, your life doesn't get saved by a computer, but it certainly may by a vaccine. But the idea behind the um, confidentiality is that governments can bargain for lower prices um, and companies may be willing to give them lower prices, but they don't want anybody else to know how low they're willing to go because then everybody will start to demand that same price. So the companies say, we'll give you a lower price if you um, keep that information secret. And government says, well, if you give us the lower price, we spend less money, less tax dollars on the product. So, yeah, we'll keep the information secret. 
which is why, for instance, when we have the, the problems we had with the rollout here in, in Canada over the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, we're getting statements from our government, we're getting statements from Pfizer about this, but uh, again, there's nothing, nothing specific in here. They're all talking in generalities. So can they get away with that by withholding stuff and not supplying it? Apparently they can, but uh, why, why didn't you think of that when you were, you know, drawing the contract up? So we really don't know what's in there. And, and I guess the frustration here, Doctor, is it's it's our money. And when you look at the process here, you know, we've talked about, you know, the, the testing that has to go on and the, the level of work that has to go into this. Uh, the, for all intents and purposes, uh, they're not taking the risk. We are as taxpayers because we're funding all of that. That's right. Um, and the information that the government or the advice that the government got about contracts, which companies to sign the contracts with, and, and the terms of the contract came from this task force that was created back um, last spring. Um, the task force had 18 people on it, and both the chair and the co-chair of the task force um, had serious conflicts of interest um, with the drug some of the drug companies making the vaccines. So the, the co-chair of the task force um, was somebody who used to be the head of Sanofi Canada until a few years ago. He still had some shares in Sanofi. Um, so did those conflicts of interest that these people had um, influence the kind of recommendations that they made to the government? Well, we don't know that either because we don't um, – the details about the recommendations aren't being made public. And as I said earlier, the contracts themselves aren't being made public. And, and, and listen, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on, on what's going on here. I mean, I can hardly wait to roll up my sleeve. I want to get the vaccine, too. Uh, and I want to get my flu shot. I believe in vaccines, and I understand just how important they are to our, our health. Uh, but we're in a system right now that I think we need to at least be aware of, I guess, Doctor, and that is that uh, uh, this is our money that uh, that funds the, the research and development. Uh, those trials that we all talked about, third stage, et cetera, we pay for that. Uh, there's virtually no risk to the drug company. So after we do all that, invest these billions and billions of dollars, the Canadian government, the U.S. government, the German government, all of them, we basically give all that information to those companies and say, now, turn around and sell it back to us at, at, a, at a profit margin. And it's, it's it just seems a, a little weird and maybe the reason they do that is because we as the public don't understand the process well the governments and here it's not just the canadian government but it's all of the governments um, that put money into the vaccine development and then guaranteed purchase of the vaccine provided that it um, was successful um, none of those none of that money came with, as far as we know, with conditions attached to it. So none of it came with a condition that the vaccine had to be sold at a certain price, that it had to be available not just in the rich countries, but in the low and middle income countries. Um, none of it came with the, um, with the companies being required to um, donate their um, intellectual property to a pool so that um, other manufacturers could t could use that the, the patent information to um, make the vaccine and increase the dosage of it. We just gave the money, apparently, uh, because, again, everything seems to be secret. We just gave the money to the companies and said, here you go. Um, 
and use the money, give us a vaccine, um, charge what you want for it, um, and we'll be happy to take it. Now, you know, to their credit, the companies um, turned out vaccines um, faster than ever before, and that's a good thing. I've been, I work in an emergency department, so I've been vaccinated. I was quite happy to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we gave up in, in re, we gave the money and we gave up control. Yeah, and I, I mean, I hope to God this never happens. But technically, though, doctor, after we do all of that and pay for all of the work that goes into this, they could turn around and simply say, we're not going to sell it to you. It's, it's a private entity. I mean, they're, they're, from what we know, and of course, as you say, a lot of those contracts, are, there's so much in there that we, we're never going to find out about. Uh, there is, to our knowledge anyway, there is no uh, quid pro quo, if I can use a phrase that got a lot of popularity a, a year or so ago, uh, to say, okay, you've given all the money, so we, we are beholden to you now to give this, this, this vaccine back to you. They could simply hold it back or, you know, as you say, charge whatever they want for it. Um, and, and, you know, we'd be up a tree without much of a, a recourse at all here, would we? Well, that's right. And even if the companies um, were willing to um, to fulfill their end of the deal, um, the contract, um, we're still, because we have no domestic um, production, um, we're still subject to what other governments may decide to do. So um, we're now hearing about um, Belgium possibly refusing to allow exports um, of the Pfizer vaccine because the European Union is slow in getting, um, slow in the vaccine rollout. Um, The UK may be um, keeping the uh, AstraZeneca vaccine until its citizens have been um, vaccinated. So the companies are not not just um, are not the only parties that we have to be concerned about. It's the idea of vaccine nationalism, which strongly argues that from the start, um, the development and um, how the vaccines were going to be distributed should have been um, a global affair rather than being um, left to individual governments. This is something that governments should have been willing to turn over to an organization like the World Health Organization to coordinate so that everybody gets a fair share of the vaccine. Because if we um, just inoculate people in the rich countries and let the vaccine run wild in places like um, Brazil, parts of Africa, um, that's a guarantee for more of these variants um, to develop, and sooner or later those variants are going to make their way back to the rich countries. Just stuff that we need to know. Uh, transparency, I guess, is the word. Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate the discussion. All right. Well, I'm pleased to do it, and thanks very much for taking an interest in this. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.